All right, good morning, everyone. Hello. Hello. Hi. Um, good morning. My name's Obed, and I'm one of the leaders here. And as always, it's, um, it, it, it's, it's a joy for me um, to have this opportunity to um, bring God's word to you. But um, you should also see it um, as a gift to be able to gather together here in this space. Um, here in this venue, isn't this cool? And we have air conditioning and everything like that. Uh, and so you guys should see it as that, as a joy um, and a gift to be able to gather in this way. If you have your Bibles, um, turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2 as a church. We've been in a series in the book of um, Hebrews, um, and it's been quite interesting. Um, we've spent, what, how many weeks now? Four weeks in Hebrews, and we have unearthed some um, incredible truths, um, and especially about Jesus. This week is going to be different. Um, just to warn you, this week is going um, to be challenging. Um, it's not going to be as celebratory as it has been. It's, it's a really challenging passage, um, and Hebrews has several of these. And so um, so I'd let you know, fasten your seatbelts. Um, some of the things you're going to hear might be challenging, but they are good for you. I promise they are. And so Hebrews chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 2, and this week we're going to be focusing on four verses, the first four verses of Hebrews chapter 2. Am I talking too fast or is this the good pace? It's a good pace. You guys can understand and hear me, yeah? I feel like I'm talking really fast, but I don't think I am. As we do as a church, as is our culture, please stand for the reading of God's word. <laughs> you think I'm talking fast? Okay, thank you, Nicole. I love Nicole for that. She will tell me. Um, brilliant. All right, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through to 4 reads, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we... Um, give me a sec. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Let's pray. God, help us and give us understanding. Give us a view and a perspective of this particular passage um, that will change the way we see you and view you and the way we live. We absolutely need you. You are good. And all that you tell us are for our benefit. And so, God, may we see how we can grow to love you and serve you in this city. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Have a seat. Have a seat. <coughs> so, uh, my father-in-law, uh, some of you have met him. He's a, 
Um, he's such a funny man. Um, he's a typical Greek man, um, meaning that everything you've seen in my big fat Greek wedding, that dad, that is him. I'm not exaggerating. They nailed it. Hollywood got that right. They really did. Um, my father-in-law is Greek, obviously, as I said, and they are from Cyprus. Cyprus, the south side of Cyprus is all Greek, and um, they you know, they live in London, but they frequently go to Cyprus on vacation. And my father-in-law, when you go on vacation with him, he's the best, especially in Cyprus. He walks around like he owns Cyprus. He does, basically, um, because he grew up there, and he knows every spot. He knows every tree. Um, he loves fig trees, so he has a habit of um, every time he sees a fig tree, stopping and grabbing fruit and sharing it with everyone. He, well, I would say he, he just runs Cyprus. He basically does. One day, um, um, Eleanor tells me the story um, of uh, time at the beach. Um, they had gone to the beach, obviously, in Cyprus. You go to the beach, and um, the water in Cyprus is incredible. It's not wavy. Um, it's Mediterranean water. It's just clear and warm and very placid and very calm. And so most of the time, what you can do is get a blow-up bed. Um, we call it a Lido, but you guys call it blow-up bed, yeah? Is that, does that make sense? Am I? Yeah, you know, that thing you blow up and you can lie on it at the pool. Yeah? Okay, we've established that. We move on. <laughs> I was asking Elena, what do Americans call this? Anyway, um, but anyway, um, he, he loves to do this. He loves to get um, a blow-up bed and lie on it on the ocean, on the sea, and just lie and relax, okay? One day, he got too relaxed and fell asleep. Next thing you know, he wakes up and he is far out. <laughs> far out, so far from land. And so, obviously, I don't know, he begins to freak out, but he's calm. And eventually, um, a boat comes and helps him um, get back to land. Um, I will never lie on an inflatable bed on an ocean, and he did it, and he does it, and to this day, he still does it. What is interesting is this. What happened to my father-in-law um, is what happens to drivers that are tired and sleepy. What happened to my father-in-law is what happens when kids play in the ocean, or a dog strays without a leash, or ships and boats are not anchored. But what happened to my father-in-law that day can also happen to Christians spiritually. What am I talking about? I'm talking about drifting. Drifting. The dictionary defines drifting in this way, to move passively, aimlessly into a certain situation or condition. The dictionary also defines it in this way, to be carried slowly by a current of air or water. The author of Hebrews will define drifting in a different way. It has a similar concept, but differently. And how the author of Hebrews, and I think scripture, would define drifting is this, to be far from Jesus Christ 
because of a failure to be anchored in him. This morning, we come to a not so comfortable and straightforward part of Hebrews. And so if you remember, the previous chapter of Hebrews celebrated who Jesus is, right? It talked about how Jesus is not just a historical figure, but Jesus is actually the Son of God, being equal with God. And what that means is that when we think about Jesus, let's not think about him being um, a, a carpenter or a, like a Jew that said some awesome thing and gained a following, but we should actually view Jesus as God in human flesh. And so that's what chapter one helped us see. This chapter this morning wants us to respond to that knowledge of Jesus, to the fact that Jesus is who he says he is, and Jesus is superior. And it wants us to express, or it wants us to respond. Um, and, it, and when we talk about what it wants us to do, the response is expressed with a warning. And the warning um, we're going to be looking at this morning is a warning to remain anchored in Christ lest we drift away from him. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at the reality of drifting, consequences of drifting, and the remedy for drifting. And so first, if you're making notes, number one, the reality of drifting. Um, in chapter one, as I said, we are seeing how Jesus is better. Jesus is better than the prophets of old. Jesus is better than angels. Um, and just so you know, um, um, the prophets and angels are not unnecessary, right? When we talk about Jesus being superior to them, we're not saying they are necessary. Um, they still have a part to play. Prophets who spoke long ago continue to speak to us through the Bible. And if, believe it or not, angels are still being used by God as his instruments to serve us as God's people, but as influential and useful as prophets and angels are, they're no match for Jesus. Jesus is still superior to them. And so what do we do with this knowledge? What actions are necessary in response to the reality that Jesus is better? How should we respond? Look at verse 1. Verse 1 says, Therefore we must do what? Pay closer attention to what we have heard. The phrase, pay much closer attention, basically means to concentrate on something to a greater extent than we have been before. All right? Um, um, it, it's a more intensified focus on something. Um, John Piper says this. He gives us an idea of what this means. He says, we must do this with very close attention. We cannot treat this casually. We cannot act as if we already know or, um, or we need to know or that we have nothing to gain from listening to Jesus. And so this is what's happening. We are being urged to pay close attention to what? Um, look at the next part of the verse. It says, to what we have heard. To what we have heard. And so the question is, what have we heard? 
All right? We've heard about Jesus. We've heard about who he is. We've heard about who, what he has done. And that is basically um, captured um, with one word, and that is the gospel. Okay, and so the author of Hebrews is asking the original listeners to pay close attention to what they've heard. And what they've heard is about who God is and how he has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to atone for the sins of humanity. They've heard about Jesus' birth. They've heard about his life. They've heard about his death and resurrection. And as well as how these events guarantee salvation for everyone everywhere who believes. And what they've heard basically is the fundamentals of the Christian faith. What they've heard is also the reality that Jesus is superior. The supremacy of Jesus Christ. And in a room of this size, I know for sure there are many of you that have heard the gospel and you haven't only heard the gospel, but you have believed the gospel of Jesus Christ. You have believed that Jesus is who he says he is, and he's done what he said he's done, and you have dedicated your life to loving and living for Jesus. And so the author of Hebrews is exhorting the Jewish Christians in the first century and us in the 21st century to pay much closer attention to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are being urged to give more attention to the gospel of Jesus Christ more than ever before. And so why? Why do we need to give more attention to the gospel Look at verse 1 again. It says, Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard. What's the next part? Lest we drift away from it. The Greek word for drift here is pararumai. Pararumai in this context is best understood when we think of it in the world of sailing. And so the image that best represents what the author wants, us, wants to convey is the image of a ship drifting in the wrong direction. It's the image of a ship whose anchor has been cut loose and is now dangerously drifting away off course. Drifting happens slowly and subtly, and most of the time, when drifting happens, whoever is involved or whatever is involved is oblivious to it. Let me quickly remind you of this, that Hebrews, okay, was written to Jewish, Jews who had converted to Christianity. Um, and as you know, life as Jewish Christians was far from easy for them. It was tough. Um, they were being disowned by family, right? And they were being persecuted by the Roman government because of their commitment to Jesus. And as a result, what was happening was many of them were beginning to have second thoughts, about Christianity, and they began to seriously consider uh, um, returning to their previous way of life. 
That was what was happening. They were like, man, like following Jesus is hard. As a result of following Jesus, I'm having to endure so much persecution and so many challenges. And so what I'm going to do is just I'm going to go back. Go back to my old way of life. They were in danger of drifting away from Jesus because of the difficulties that came with faith in Jesus. Arkent Hughes, who's a pastor and author, says that their experience 2,000 years ago intersects our lives in this way. Listen to this. Drifting is the besetting sin of our day. Drifting is the besetting sin of our day. Most of us have not and will not experience the same kind of persecution the original audience of Hebrews had to deal with. But what we do have in common with them is that we are all prone to drifting. We are susceptible to drifting away from the person and work of Jesus Christ. To drift is to unintentionally, when we talk about drifting in the Christian sense, is to unintentionally push Jesus out of the center of your life, is to push Jesus further and further into the periphery of your life. And so you have drifted when you have lost your excitement for the gospel. You have drifted when you live with little excitement for the person and work of Jesus Christ. To drift is to be less interested in the things of God and more interested in worldly pursuits. You have drifted when furthering your career becomes more consuming to you than advancing the gospel. You have drifted when you find yourself delighting more in serving Jesus than being with Jesus. You have drifted when the sins you once hated, you now tolerate. You have drifted when hiding sin has become more acceptable to you than confessing it and doing all you can to rid yourself of it. You have drifted when you're more entertained, okay, more entertained by Netflix than the mighty acts of the living God. You have drifted when you value the love of others above the love God has demonstrated to you in Jesus. You have drifted when you are more interested in defending your political party than defending the faith. You have drifted when you spend more time scrolling through social media than flicking through the pages of your Bible. You have drifted away from Christ when the majority of your time is spent more on finding joy in created things rather than the creator God himself. And so the question is, where are you at? Have you drifted? 
has the love you had for Jesus Christ grown cold? We're all prone to drifting. And whenever we drift, we risk suffering severe consequences. We are all prone to drifting, and whenever we drift, we are likely to experience severe consequences. And so what are those consequences? What, what possibly can happen? That's what we're going to look at next. And so we've seen the possibility of drifting. Now we turn to the consequence of drifting, the consequences of drifting. Look at verse 2. To the first part of verse 3 reads, for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, first part of verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Stop there. So most public speakers in the ancient world, um, what they would use is a, a variety of rhetorical tools and to, in order to motivate their listeners to take some sort of action, okay? We do that in our day and age. We use all sorts of communication tools. We use stories. Um, we use all sorts to get people to do something. As a church, we have kind of done it. I remember when we needed more kids in kids' ministry, and we had kids up here to, like, announce it and promote it, and that helped get people involved. And so we use all sorts of rhetorical <laughs> things to get people to take action, and that's what the public speakers in the ancient world is. And one of the most popular tools, and this is fascinating, guys, right? So lean forward and listen to this. This is really fascinating. Um, one of the most popular tools they used in order to get people to take action was an argument. It was called an argument from lesser to greater. Argument from lesser to greater. Um, theologian George Guthrie um, describes it in this way. He says, this type of argument reasoned that if some principle is true in a less important situation, then it certainly is true and has greater implication in more important situation. Okay, let me illustrate that. For example, if I walked into a local liquor store and I stole a Twix, all right, piece of candy, Twix, because I love Twix, and I was like, I'm going to steal Twix, and then I get caught on camera, right, I'm going to get in trouble for that, okay? I, that's never going to happen. I hope it doesn't, but I'll get in trouble for that, okay? Imagine if I said, you know what, I need some more money. San Diego's expensive gas prices, so I'm going to go rob a bank. Okay? If I try and rob a bank and I get caught, I'm going to get in trouble. Okay? Stealing a piece of candy gets me in trouble, but there are less, less, less consequences. The consequences are lesser. And robbing a bank has greater consequences. Okay? And so this is what we're talking about. The author of Hebrews does the same kind of thing. Okay? He'll help us see that because something is true in a less important situation, it's certainly, definitely true and has greater implications in more important situation. And so what he uses is this argument style of lesser and greater to help us see this. He wants to help us see the severe, unavoidable consequences we face when we drift. And so he begins with the lesser. He begins with the lesser. Look at verse 2 again. He says, 
For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedient received a just retribution. Stop there, okay? Um, this statement, okay, his audience he's writing to are mostly Jews. They would have not only um, been familiar with this statement in verse 2, but they would have agreed with it. And this is because the majority of Jews back then, and still now, believe that angels were involved in the giving of the law. Okay, um, um, beginning of the giving of the law. They believe that the law was delivered to Moses by angels on Mount Sinai. Um, in the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, Deuteronomy 33 verse 2, talks about how angels were with the Lord when he came down from Mount Sinai. Other passages in the Bible, including Acts 7:53 and Galatians 3:19, um, lend support to this view. Okay. And so we believe angels were involved in giving the law, right, through Moses, right, to the people of God. And verse 2 also says that the message that was delivered through angels was reliable. And because it was reliable, listen to this, every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, Okay, in other words, an unwillingness to hear and obey the law, okay, which came through the angels and the prophets, resulted in punishment. If you are aware of your Bible, you're aware of the Old Testament, okay, what you'll know is that whenever God's people broke the law, broke the law in any way, there was punishment. If I had time, okay, we would go through a ton of passages. We would be like, wow, that happened. People who broke the law were punished for breaking the law. Why? Because God had spoken, and even though he spoke through angels and Moses, it was a law that had to be taken seriously and obeyed. This was the lesser. This is the lesser argument. Now, let's look at the greater argument. Okay? And the greater argument is expressed in a question. Look at verse 2 again. And the first part of verse 3, okay? Verse 2, we already have established, for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. Verse 3, here it is. Here's the greater argument. How shall we escape if we what? I can't hear you. If we what? What? Exactly. In other words, okay, listen to me. Is my mic, can you guys hear me? Is my mic good, yeah? Okay, good. In other words, if the lesser is true, punishment for breaking the law, that is punishment for breaking the law, then the greater, which is neglecting the great salvation, is definitely true and will result in far worse punishment. George Guthrie puts it this way. If punishment followed rejection of the law, it certainly will follow rejection of the word of salvation. 
Why is this? Why does unavoidable punishment follow the neglect of the gospel? Why is it a worse offense than breaking the law of Moses? This is why. Okay, I'll give it to you. This is why. The law was delivered to God's people by his messengers, but the gospel was announced to God's people by his son. The law was delivered to God's people by his messengers, lesser, but the gospel was announced to God's people by his son. Okay? When it came to the law, God spoke to his people through his messengers, right? His prophets, Moses, all of that. But when it came to the gospel, what happened? God speaks to his people in person, face to face. Let me illustrate this. So King Charles III is the new king. And one day King Charles gets up and says, well, you know what, I want to say, I want to speak to one of my subjects. Okay? And they do kind of like a lottery thing and my name pops up. Okay? Wow, my name popped up. I'm going to hear from King Charles III. And King Charles communicates to me in this way. He sends me a letter. First of all, he sends me a letter. And one day I'm in my house in, you know, in San Diego. Someone knocks on the door um, and is one of the king's men. Okay? And he says, Obed, I have a letter from King Charles III. <laughs> he hands it to me. And I go, oh my gosh. You know, is this real? And it's real. Whatever. And so I open it and it's a letter. Okay? And I read it. And I'm like, this is incredible. Wow, this is incredible. And I just kind of leave the letter and go about my daily life. That's not going to happen, but I do that. Imagine. King Charles III doesn't hear from me. And so he wants to really communicate to me. And so King Charles III gets on a plane, cross the pond to San Diego International Airport, drives from the airport to my house, knocks on my door and says, Hello, Obed. I open I pass out, <laughs> I wake up, and he's like, I just wanted to tell you that you are awesome. Something like that. <laughs> That's the difference we're talking about. When we talk about the law, okay, the law was delivered by God through his people through his messengers, angels, and prophets, especially in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, God was like, man, I'm going to flesh this out. I am going to come and communicate to my people, to the world, face to face. Thomas Wright says this, well, the law was a message from the one true God sent through the special messengers, the angels, but in the message of the gospel, the king himself has come to speak to us directly. In the verse that follows, the author of Hebrews gives three reasons to establish the credibility of the gospel. 
Um, he says in the last part of verse 3, it was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. In verse 4, he says, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various um, miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will, these things were strong proofs that Christ's words were true and that the words of those who heard him were also true and this concludes the greater argument and so let's go back to our question how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation and the answer is we cannot if punishment followed the rejection of the Lord, then there's no way of escaping the devastating consequences of neglecting the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we think the consequences for not keeping the law were severe, how much worse will they be for not following the gospel? In Jesus, God himself came from heaven and spoke the message of salvation through his words, his life, and his death. Now, what's happening is this, all right? We are all being warned that if we neglect this great word, we are much more guilty than the people of the Old Testament who disobeyed the word of God given through angels. And because of this, we will not escape. Failing to pay close attention to the gospel of Jesus Christ and the drifting away that results is described in verse 3 as what? As neglecting a great salvation. And this negligence comes with devastating and inescapable consequences. Listen to this. If we continue to drift by neglecting this great salvation, we will not escape. We will suffer the devastating consequences as a result. That is, we will not escape the judgment of God. Listen. This is what's happening, okay? There's been a growing trend of what I like to call the God I prefer. The God I prefer. It's essentially a trend in which the God of the New Testament, all right, it's seen as loving and gracious. And that God is preferred over the Old Testament God, right, who is kind of viewed as a God of judgment and wrath. Essentially, this is what's happened. It's a trend that aims to remove the idea of divine punishment from the beliefs of Christianity. It's getting uncomfortable. But we have to talk about this. In the mid-1980s, um, during um, um, a demonstration, a bishop based out of New York stated that the idea of a God who punishes sin comes from primitive, barbaric passages of the Old Testament. 
This is one of many examples of the desire in our culture to view the concept of punishment as outdated and unrelated to the God of the Bible. Yeah, as George Guthrie says, the theme of just punishment for disobedience to God's will looms large in both the Old and New Testament. If you're here and you consider yourself to be a Christian, this is what's true about you. You have been delivered from the penalty and punishment of sin, but you've not been delivered from the consequences of sin. God is a loving father, but he's also a God who will discipline the children he loves. And so when we drift, this is what will happen. God will come after us. And at times, he'll do this by bringing trials and challenges in our lives, often painful, and the goal is to draw us back to himself. The topic of punishment is uncomfortable to preach, And I'm sure it's uncomfortable to hear. But it's necessary. Because for us who are susceptible to drifting, the concept of punishment motivates us towards obedience and perseverance in the Christian faith. Yes, the love of God is a huge motivation Absolutely, but we cannot overlook the fact that Scripture talks about the devastating consequences on punishment of neglecting and also rejecting God. And that is necessary for us to hear because it's motivating for us. And so we've looked at the reality of drifting, the consequences of drifting. Lastly, we will look at the remedy for drifting. Um, The remedy of drifting. R. Kent Hughes says this, The concern is for one's attitude, the one who has let the greatness of Christ slip away. This is where he's talking about the idea of drifting and neglecting. The concern is for one's attitude, the one who has let the greatness of Christ slip away, the one who no longer marvels at the atonement, the one who no longer has a desire for the world, the one who really does not pray in his spirit, the one who is drifting back to where he came from and has little concern about his drifting. Some of you here this morning need to hear this. You are a professing believer, but you are not in a good place. You are not in a good place. And the reason why is, the reason why is, you have not rejected Christ outright. But you have been drifting. You have been neglecting him. 
you have been drifting further and further away from Christ without realizing it. And so if you can relate, if you're like, gosh, I think this is talking about me. What must you do? What's the remedy? Look back at verse 1. It says, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. In other words, how? The remedy is this, is to make every effort to refocus on and pay the greatest attention to your Savior, Jesus Christ. Griffith Thomas says, the protection against drifting is to have Christ as the anchor and rudder of life. The anchor will hold us to the truth while the rudder will guide us by the truth. Pay much closer attention to understanding the gospel. Pour over scripture. Dedicate much of your time to the things of God, to read in Scripture and to prayer and to being with God's people and do everything you can to remove from your life anything that will distract and divert you from such a great salvation. Delight in the daily disciplines of fellowship with God's people and communion with God. I got a question for you. What evidence is there in your life that the gospel message of Jesus is true and powerful? What evidence is there in your life that the gospel message of Jesus Christ is true and powerful? If you find that question difficult to answer, there is a possibility you've been drifting away from the good news of Jesus' person and work to which you have been paying, which you should be paying closer attention. And so if you have been drifting this morning, if you've been drifting this morning, Listen to this. One of the signs of hope that you are born again, you are a Christian, is that there is a rising desire in your heart to turn your eyes and affections to Jesus Christ and to consider him and listen to him in the days and months and years to come. There's a desire within you to turn to Christ. And one of the signs that you may not be the Christian you think you are is that you hear what I'm saying and you feel no desire to guard against drifting. You're like, hmm, that was cool. And if you are here and you don't profess to be a Christian, 
may you know this, that God demonstrated his love for you in that while you were a sinner, while you have chosen to live your life away from him and without him, he demonstrated his love for you in that he sent Jesus Christ to live a sinless life, died the death of a sinful man, and then Jesus didn't stay that he rose again to have victory over death through his resurrection. And as a result, that offer of forgiveness of sins and eternal life is available for you this morning. You right now, I don't know what's happening in your heart. There are two things that could be happening. You'll be like, I hate this experience. What am I doing here? Or you could be stirred. All of this has piqued your interest. And I'm not saying make a final decision. I'm saying whatever is going on, if there is something's captured your heart, pursue hard after it. Because I believe, and if you're a Christian, you believe for them that God is at work, that we serve a God who is alive for sure. And he has made a way through Jesus Christ. He has made a way for us to know him and live for him and worship him. And so if you're here and you have not yet surrendered your life to Christ, may you consider him seriously. C.S. Lewis has a great perspective on all of this. And when he talks about how the strengthening of, you know, the strengthening of our faith in mere Christianity, um, he says this, the first step is to recognize the fact that your moods change. The next is to make sure that if you have once accepted Christianity, then some of its main doctrines shall be deliberately held before your mind for some time every day. That is why daily prayers and religious readings and church going are necessary parts of the Christian life. We have to be continually reminded of what we believe. Neither this belief nor any other will automatically remain alive in the mind. It must be fed. And as a matter of fact, if you examine the hundred people who had lost their faith in Christianity, I wonder how many of them would turn out to have been reasoned out of it by honest argument do not most people simply drift away let's pray and so God um, I've done my best to communicate the themes and the truths of this passage and so I ask like the, you have been at work and I rely and I look to you to continue to do that. We, we absolutely are thankful for you. And as we sing and are reminded of who you are and what you've done in Christ, I pray, God, that you would stir in our hearts a passion for your name. And that in some that are here this morning that you love so much, you would cause them to seriously explore Explore who you are for real.
In Jesus' name we pray, amen.